We're glad you're with us today in worship. I'd like to thank Ezekai Rashito, who brought our message the last few weeks. And this morning, I am going to be doing something that is impossible. We are going through the entire scriptures, and I have chosen in one week to give a message on all of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Being as it cannot be done, you might as well be prepared to be here for about seven or eight hours because just reading through the wisdom literature would probably take us a couple of hours because you see what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the books of Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. It's an introduction, but I hope when we're done, you will have learned some things and will feel a little bit more comfortable going to each of those scriptures and reading them because they are all wonderful books that are written for very, very practical reasons. You see, with the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and some people will also put the book of James in the New Testament in that same genre, what you discover is these books have the emphasis on the individual. So a lot of times we come to church or we open our scriptures or we go to a Bible study and we want to say, what does God have to say to me directly? Frequently, when we're reading scripture, it may be addressing a national issue or, or how to do things in the church. And then we try to find application for us. Wisdom literature is written very individualistic. It's written to tell you and me how to live a good, godly life. It isn't also only written for believers. It's written as wisdom or wise advice for everyone. And so the wisdom literature is very, very helpful. And we go and we will look at it and we discover it's telling us very specific things on how to live our life. It is an emphasis on morality and not organized religion. It is an emphasis on wisdom and learning. What are the things that we need to learn in order to do life? What are the things that we need to do that our parents often, you think of, moms would teach us things and we sort of have these sayings like a lot of times I'll remember the wisdom that my mother shared with me, some of these simple little sayings. That's a lot of what you're going to find in the Old Testament wisdom literature. However, there are different keys of understanding these books and one of them is understanding fear. Healthy versus unhealthy fear. You see, fear, people will say, is the most powerful of all emotions, and it probably is. Fear can literally paralyze people and keeps people in bad relationships. It keeps people from making choices that they need to make. But in reality, that's not fear. That's negative fear. There is, according to wisdom literature of the Old Testament, a healthy fear. So I'd like us to think about for a moment the difference between unhealthy fear versus healthy fear. Let me demonstrate. I don't like coming over to this building alone at night, but sometimes I have to. I have to come over here. I live next door, and I have to come over. I have to get something, and when everything is dark, I just am uncomfortable. So I kind of look like a crazy guy as I come in, and I flip on a light, and I run to the next light, turn the light on, get my stuff, look around, turn off a light, run to the next light, get it off, get out of the building as quickly as I can. Do we have any other people who don't like being alone in the dark in an empty building? 
I can't be the only one. That's an unhealthy fear. That's more of a phobia. That's not really, when we're talking about healthy fear, what we're talking about. Let me try another one. Sometimes, is my mic on? Okay, sorry. Sometimes I wake up at night from a nightmare. I wake up and I think that I didn't study for a test and it's morning and I have to go take a test and I'm going to flunk it. And I go, wait a second, I'm not in high school anymore. That's an unhealthy fear. It's a thought of some random thing that we're afraid of. However, Scripture helps us understand there is a healthy fear. The one that I often like to think of is, goes right back to the very first time that I ever traveled to Niagara Falls. My mom was from Ontario, so we would see the American Falls, but we always had to go see the Canadian Falls. And there's this one place, and I still love going back to it, where there is a railing that comes along, and you stand there, and the falls is literally right in front of you. And you can stand and watch the water rush over and just feel the mist and the power of everything. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look in there, that's not exactly a calm little pool that I want to go swimming in. The fear is not that I'm terrified of it. It's a respect for what that is. It's a respect that there's a power and an awesomeness that's greater than me, that's bigger than me. When the scripture talks about a healthy fear, it's like having a respect for Niagara Falls. When it talks about an unhealthy fear, it's those things in our life that we just need to learn to deal with to realize that God is bigger and greater than any of the things that we get afraid of. The wisdom literature reminds us that God is all-powerful. Do you hear that? All-powerful. Greater than Niagara Falls. Greater than the things that we give power to. Greater than the things that we think can control our lives. And when we understand the greatness, the awesomeness of God, the scripture calls that a fear. It's a respect. It's an understanding that C.S. Lewis says, if God's not big enough for us to have a respect for, God's not big enough to do work in our lives. If the only thing we have is our own best thinking, we kind of don't have a lot. But once we can get to the point where the wisdom literature of the Old Testament helps us understand that God is God. God spoke a word and it all came into creation. God works in our life and hears and answers our prayers. We start to realize that the things that we are quote-unquote afraid of don't need to cause us fear. But rather what we need to do is put our trust in the one who's greater than us. As we look at Job and Ecclesiastes, I believe we start to see some unhealthy fear. When we look at Proverbs, we're going to see how it lays out what is a healthy fear or respect of God. So let's start with our first one. Let's start with the book of Job. I like to say that Job is written from the perspective of helping us understand that an unhealthy fear is false expectations appearing real. False expectations appearing real. I'm sorry, folks. Expectations get us every time. We have these things in our mind that we start fathoming as if they are real, and they're not real. If you and I know the future, let's all get together later, and I'd like you to 
like, tell me what stocks to invest in in the market, and we can all become multimillionaires. If we can all predict and know the future, I'd like to have a conversation about who's going to win the Super Bowl this next year. The truth is, we don't know the future. We have these things we call expectations or these thoughts about the future that we somehow convince ourselves that they somehow are true, and they're not. And we see that with Job. Job is a person who the Bible tells us had everything. For him, he would have gone through life, which what he probably would have thought was a reasonable expectation. Wealthiest man in town. Big shot, living in Plymouth. Has more money than anyone else and has the biggest house, the nicest car, and takes the greatest vacation. And so the expectations for him was that life was going to continue to be good and tomorrow was going to be as good or better than today. But something happened and he didn't even know what was going to happen. Then all of a sudden, he loses everything. So all those thoughts, all those expectations, they didn't mean anything. Because all the stuff that he thought he was going to have tomorrow, he didn't have tomorrow. And all of a sudden, now he's dealing with life in a completely different realm. And now Job is tempted with new false expectations. Now he assumes that life is really bad. And not only has he lost everything, but tomorrow's probably going to be worse than today. And then along come his friends. I love that they're called friends. Because what do they tell him? Well, Job, obviously you've done something bad. Why don't you just curse God and die? With friends like that, who needs enemies? Job goes from thinking he knows the future, it's all rosy, to thinking he knows the future, it's all awful. And in reality, if you read Job chapter 1, you discover that there's this cosmic forces that are happening out there. And a conversation between God and Satan and Job is unaware. There's no possibility he could have any idea of what's beyond the scenes, what's happening, and what's going to happen to him. It's for that reason the Apostle Paul says things like, our struggle is really not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers, against the forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You see, the problem with expectations is they're not real. They appear real. We think they're real. We think in our mind that we know what's going to happen. But the truth is we don't. And when we're living out of expectations, we're not living by faith. When I think of Job, I often think of Rose, who is in my first church. Rose got hired by Wang Computers when they were just a little small company and she was one of the original seven employees. By the time I moved to Lowell and I was in my first church, Wang Computers had 33,000 employees. It was worth $3 billion. And when I first arrived in Lowell, Rose was a multimillionaire. She had no place for God or no need for God in her life because she always figured she knew what the future was. Her brother was very active in our church, and when we would do prayer time, he would often ask us to pray for Sister Rose that she would come to faith. Then something happened. When computers went bankrupt. Rose's multi-millions turned into $6,000, and she had health issues and ended up in the hospital. 
That's where I really first started to get to know her and started to visit her. And Rose came to faith in her 80s when all of a sudden she realized that only God was all-powerful. All this other stuff that she thought she had figured out or all of the things that she thought she had lost that had destroyed her life, she realized was nothing in comparison to an awesome God who gave her her very breath and had given his son to be her savior. We are in a dangerous place when we allow our false expectations to rule our thinking. And that's what Job reminds us of. And yet we all do it. We do it in big ways. I think of one of the silly ways in which I did. April 21st, 2009. I remember that day well because it's a day before I was about to turn 50. Now, I'd read something in Runner's World magazine because my son Todd was a runner, and so we got Runner's World magazine, and it said, if you want to become a runner when you're older, a good thing to do is start before you turn 50. So I had been planning for about a year that when I turned 50, I was going to start before I turned 50. So the day before I turned 50, we were out visiting in Ohio, and I decided I'm going to become a runner again today. I went out for a run. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Not bad for a 49-year-old, 364-year, or 364-day guy. Therefore, I decided to do one more mile until I got a oops. That meant my calf hurt so badly, I could hardly even walk. Fortunately, we're at a university. I went into the training center, and they helped me. And the next day or a couple days, I really had a hard time walking. So my expectation went from I can do everything to I can do nothing. Woe is me, poor Stan. It's never going to work. What I ended up doing is I ended up hiring a running coach who taught me how to do things properly. Here's the point. We get those expectations in our heads all the time. Everything's great. Everything's awful. We don't know the future, folks. False expectations are resentments waiting to happen. When you and I can't do anything more than get caught in the skin of Job, thinking we know the future when we don't, we're going to discover that false expectations appearing real are going to bring an unhealthy fear in our life rather than us learning to live life the way God wants us to live. Which takes us to our second wisdom literature, the book of Ecclesiastes. If the book of Job teaches us that unhealthy fear is false expectations appearing real, Ecclesiastes basically says, face everything and run. It's all worthless anyhow. What shot do you think you got? I like to think of Ecclesiastes as a dialogue, as a conversation. You get to sit down and you get to have a conversation with someone and you get to get inside their head and hear how they view the world. The problem is you're having a dialogue with Eeyore. Any of you remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Life is bad. Only going to get worse. Poor me. One of my favorite movies is, or TV shows, I guess, is Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. Eeyore's tail falls off. Christopher Robin finds it and says, Eeyore, your tail fell off. Let me put it back. 
doesn't matter. It'll probably fall off again anyhow. Ecclesiastes 1-2. Meaningless. Meaningless. Utter meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The word that's translated meaningless or sometimes vanity is the Hebrew word havel. It's used 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. 40 times meaningless comes up. The word literally means vapor. Have you ever been out on a cold day and you take a breath and you see your breath and it goes away? What Eeyore in Ecclesiastes says is, who cares, what does it matter? Everything in life is like a vapor. Time, <laughs> generations come and generations go. Why should I think I'm special? Death. Both the wise and the fool, according to Eeyore, die anyway. What does it matter? Chance. Huh. Race doesn't always go to swift, we read in Ecclesiastes. He even complains about possessions. You got wealth, you got things. Oh, they're just temporary. Eventually they go to someone else. Hard work. Why work hard? There's always more work to do anyway. And so the author explores what happens if we have no God? What happens if we just make the things of this world all powerful and that's the only thing that we can look at and we can hold on to are the things of this world? Ecclesiastes helps us see that if our faith is in this world, it's heaven. It's breath. If the best that I have are the things that I have earned and I've saved up for, eventually they're not going to be mine. If the best that we can hope for is our job, eventually we will not have our job. If I put all of my faith and all of my hope in my children, my children are going to grow up and are going to eventually move off. You see, the problem that happens in life is not that there isn't a God, it's that we make other things God. It's not that there's not something that's ultimate that we can trust in. Ecclesiastes says, listen to what you're doing when you're making the things of this world the most important thing in your life. And therefore, what does Ecclesiastes says? Basically, if there is no God, you might as well face everything and run. But then Ecclesiastes ends with these wonderful words. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and His commandments, for this is the duty of all people. Fear God, Ecclesiastes says. The preacher comes in with a solution to it all. Put God in His rightful place in your life. Stop worrying. Then Ecclesiastes says, look at all the good things you have. Once you make God all-powerful and understand that that's where the power lies, rather than these other things that aren't going to be around forever anyhow, then you can enjoy your friends. Then the Ecclesiastes says you can enjoy the sunshine. Now you can enjoy relationships. Now you can take each day and enjoy the day that God has given to us for what it is. Why? Because everything else no longer has power over us, but now we understand that God is God and nothing else deserves that respect. Which brings us to our final book. The first one reminds us that false 
expectations cause fear in our life. The second book, the book of Ecclesiastes, reminds us that if all we do is trust in the things of this world, life's not going to be that great for us. It's all going to disappoint. And then along comes Proverbs. Proverbs gives us a different understanding of fear. I like to put it this way. Face it, explore it, accept it, and with God's help, rise above it. Hear that? Face it, explore it, accept it, and with God's help, rise above it. Notice I didn't say with our own thinking. Listen to how Proverbs begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Here we start putting God in his rightful place and realizing, I don't know what the future is, but God does. I don't know what God has for me tomorrow, but God does. I don't know all sorts of things in this world, but I don't need to because I can trust God. And if I understand that God is all-powerful, yes, more powerful than Niagara Falls, that God spoke and this world came into existence. We went astray. He sent his son to be our savior. Satan tries to take us down. God's power is greater. We don't know where to turn. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts and directs us. We're having a bad day. We trust, we pray, and God says, call a friend. We call a friend and they encourage us. We start realizing that when we put God in his rightful place, that God is one to be honored and respected, or as the wisdom literature likes to call it, have a healthy fear of God. Growing up in North Dakota is a little different than growing up in Plymouth, Massachusetts. One of the things that I learned is, for those of us who were kids growing up in North Dakota, we got our driver's license quite early. I got my license when I was 14 years old. Crazy, but it's true. By the time I'm 14, I'm driving a car. And my dad was really good at encouraging us to drive, and so my dad got me out driving very quickly as soon as I was old enough to um, figure out how to turn the car on. And I have a lot of experiences that were good and some of them kind of crazy about putting a 14-year-old behind the wheel. And one of the things that happened that has always made a huge impact on me is a few years later, my parents were living out in the country in a little town called Reynolds. Now, I went from being a townie to living out in the country when I would be with my parents. And the interesting thing of being out in the country is the roads were all gravel roads. And my dad owned a car that was a Peugeot. He was very proud of it. It was a little French car that was diesel. And one day, he and I were, were out driving, and I was behind the, the wheel. And it had been raining, and what my dad used to like to say is the roads would turn into gumbo. That literally means they turned into this weird slushy thing that nobody should be driving on. The other thing you need to know about the roads out in the country in the Dakotas is everything is flat, but the roads are built up. So if you go along, you, you, the roads literally come up with a mound like that. 
And I'm driving along with my dad in the passenger seat, and all of a sudden the car started spinning out. And it circled around and went over the side of the road and stopped. Didn't go down the ditch, stopped. My dad and I got out of the car. I was kind of embarrassed, and he said, it happens, son, don't worry about it. And all of a sudden the car started to move, and it was going to go over the side of the road. And I ran right in front of the car to push the car back, and my dad yelled, get out of there. And he said to me something that I'll never forget. He said, you have to have respect for the mass of a car and for gravity. If you don't, you will get crushed. Now, here's the thing. If respected, a car in gravity can do amazing things. If it wasn't for gravity and the mass of our car, we wouldn't get in our cars and we wouldn't drive them someplace. But they also need to be understood that improperly used, the mass of a car in gravity can do immense damage. What the writer of Proverbs wants us to understand is the power of God. Respect it. Respect who God is. Respect God's authority. Don't think that you and I can push it around and manipulate it and that somehow we're in control of God. Proverbs teaches us that literally God has the ultimate power and not the things of this world. When we see God is all-powerful and we trust God for who he is, our lives start to make sense. We also start to listen to God and quit thinking that our own thinking has it all figured out. I'm sorry, our heads are a dangerous neighborhood, folks. If the best thing that we can do is go to that little squirrel thing in our head that keeps spinning round and round and round, it's not going to make life better. But once we put God on the throne of our life and understand that God is to be honored, we start listening to who God is and how he tells us to live our lives. Which is why then, if you turn to the book of Proverbs, you find all these wise sayings. We could just sit here and read one after another after another. They're guidance on how to live our lives. You find the same thing as I mentioned in the book of James in the New Testament. Just these very practical ways when we honor God and listen to what he says on how we should live our lives. I like to think of it as a broken wheel or an out-of-shape wheel versus a wheel that's balanced. Have you ever had a car where your wheel's out of balance and all of a sudden you start having the, the steering wheel start shaking and you start knowing something's wrong? Well, the same thing can be true of our lives. An out-of-balanced wheel in our life is when the following things start ruling and controlling our thinking. False expectations. Negative thinking. Fear of people. Fear of places. Fear of things. All of a sudden, we've put everything wrong in the wrong place. We've given it too much power. And we sort of feel like that car shaking as we're driving it down the road. What the wisdom literature of the Old Testament wants us to do is learn to have a balanced life. Learn to put the proper things in place so that our life is balanced, our life is whole, our life is healthy. Remember, this is not just literature written to believers. This is written to everybody. 
And so what does a well-balanced wheel look like? Well, here is where I had a lot of fun. Because I had so many I can choose from, I simply chose five. Moral living. Proverbs 24, 16 says, The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. Hear what Proverbs is saying? Live a good, godly, moral life, and you're going to fall down, you're going to be able to get up again. Second thing, take good advice. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Learn not to have to do it. That's not Pastor Stan telling you to take advice. That's God telling us to take advice. When you're struggling, ask for help is basically what the proverb is saying. I like the next one. Pause first. Proverbs 21, 23. Watch your tongue, listen to these words, and keep your mouth shut. Watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut, and you will stay out of trouble. How many of you wish you would have thought of that a couple times? I need that on the dashboard of my car. I need it to be the first thing I see when I wake up in the morning. Keep your mouth shut. I like to quote the proverb this way. I never got myself in trouble when I kept my mouth shut. It's in the Bible. Value your family. Think of all the things that we give power to or, or we spend time with. That really doesn't matter. I saw something recently that says, you know, spending all your time working, 40 years from now, the only person who's going to remember that is your kids. Scary thought, isn't it? We do all this stuff to value everything else, but what does the proverb say? I think this is my favorite of them all. Grandchildren are the crown of their elders. The glory of children is their parents. Value your family. Or the final one I'd like to share, protect your thoughts. Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart above everything else for it determines the course of your life. Just take five Proverbs, put them together, learn to live them. Take three, take one. Our life starts getting in balance. The problem that happens with fear is not that fear is a bad thing. Fear properly placed is a respect of power of someone else or something else. What the wisdom literature wants us to understand is what is the thing that we give that priority to in our life. What are you giving power in your life? That's our question. What are you giving power in your life? As we close our service, we have a tradition here of inviting people to come forward for prayer. If you have learned to put the wrong things first in your life and you'd like one of the elders of the church to pray with you, we invite the elders who are with us to please come forward. I think there's, I see Beth is here and if we could have a few others come forward. Bob, if you could come forward. If there's something in your life that's out of balance and you simply need to learn to put God in his rightful place, I invite you to come forward for prayer. And now let us all stand as we close our service with our song.